All right. Well, anyway, uh, it's uh, an honor to be with you once again tonight. Let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for your kindness to us. Uh, we are a blessed people, and we know that uh, as believers we can look at this life and wake up in the morning and realize that you have provided another day. We can look at around uh, at the people uh, whom we love and who uh, love us and know that those are gifts from you. And we just thank you for those things, Lord, and pray that we would treasure them and treasure you and not forget uh, the giver of the good gifts uh, for the gifts themselves. Uh, now, Lord, I just pray for this room full of people. I know we, we are in the middle of the week and we've all come from different places uh, in our responsibilities in life and uh, the busyness of life and uh, I just thank you that uh, for your own reasons you brought each one of us here uh, right now. Uh, the thing we have in common is that we want uh, truth, we want to um, know you better, we want to love you more deeply, and uh, we pray that you would supply. Uh, we pray it in the name of Jesus, our King, and in the power of the Spirit he sent. Amen. Well, um, as you know, uh, this summer series was named uh, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, and uh, that was uh, Jeff Sample's uh, brainchild. It's been a great series. I've uh, really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed preparing for it. And I want to say, start by saying that my assigned topic tonight is indeed a hard saying, and uh, for a number of reasons, but the main reason is uh, that um, my hard saying, uh, Jesus really like never said it. Um, Somewhere, somewhere along the line, uh, you know, the list got passed around. Uh, I, I really had decided, uh, just kind of in my heart, that whatever I would pick whatever topic nobody else picked. And uh, so I just kind of laid back. And uh, somewhere, somewhere between the looking at the list and basically I think two, two sayings of Jesus got kind of molded together either in the brochure or on the piece of paper we checked a box on or whatever. So anyway, um, my assigned saying doesn't, isn't, doesn't exist. So uh, that's what makes it difficult. Um, um, I'll add one more thing. What I thought I was going to say was, uh, teach on was uh, forgive your enemies, okay? I think that's uh, love your enemies and uh, pray for those who persecute you and uh, some other things about forgiveness. So anyway, um, the idea of forgiveness is certainly upheld in, in the whole of Jesus' teaching, and we'll touch on that at least to um, a, a minor degree. But uh, that said, let's go to God's Word and uh, look at it together. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll start at verse 43, Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Now, Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know that in September we come upon the uh, five-year anniversary of 9-11. And uh, I'll just tell you that a couple nights ago, 
uh, probably 10 or 10.30 at night. I was in the living room pacing back and forth uh, as if standing in front of you uh, wonderful people in my living room, kind of air preaching, uh, thinking about my opening remarks and stuff. And I was just walking back and forth. And my wife walked in the living room, and my eyes were just full of tears. And she was kind of, what's wrong? And uh, I said, uh, I was thinking about 9-11. And uh, I don't know about you, I'm kind of an emotional guy, but I, I, I have over the years, have uh, been moved and moved and moved again over 9-11. And it's just amazing to me and to, to many of you how, yeah, you know, we don't live in Manhattan, but isn't it interesting how uh, many people we seem to know either knew somebody who perished in that accident or uh, that, that uh, tragedy, that attack, uh, or uh, know someone who knows someone uh, who died. Um, so that's coming up. That's kind of a prominent thing. And, of course, the liquid bombing attempt uh, has, has uh, kind of heightened our understanding of the people who want to hurt us uh, and all the subsequent annoying uh, flight changes that we've all had to make. It's just, it's just uh, they're poignant, uh, continual reminders. Well, if there was ever a more timely message on uh, what to do with our enemies, uh, I don't know what it would be. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, we are in a time of war, and that's a different kind of a scenario. When people who hate us are actively trying to hurt us uh, and blow up our planes and stuff like that, then we have to use our military for what it's there for. But that said, uh, even though we're in a scenario of wartime, um, this text still has a very uh, powerful and immediate impact on our lives. For most of us, uh, on a personal level, uh, this is a very hard statement indeed. When Jesus says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a hard statement on a personal level. Um, there's, a, there's a writer I like very much and a wonderful preacher uh, named Sinclair Ferguson. And he's got a very good quote that says, The law is only a starting place, the shadow cast on man's sinful life. Now, what does he mean by that? That the law... Um, is, is a starting place, and it's a shadow cast on sinful man's life. Well, let me ask you, what does God's law do? What, what does the law do for us? Anybody, what does the law do? God's law. What is, can, can, what? Guides us, indeed. Very good. Anybody? What else? It condemns us. Good, John. Anybody else? Keeps us accountable. Wonderful. Shows us our need for Christ? Indeed. Those are all great answers. And, and uh, uh, let, me, let me put these two together. Um, you know, if you're driving on the road and you're, you're driving through some podunk town and, and uh, you're going 65 miles an hour and you're like, oh, this is a little town. Where's the Taco Bell? There isn't one. And uh, all of a sudden you, you think, what's the speed limit around this place? And, and uh, you see a 35-mile-per-hour uh, sign and you're going 65. And you've heard this illustration before. But yet all of a sudden that speed limit sign pops up and you realize you've been going 30 miles an hour over. Well, just because you didn't know that doesn't mean you weren't breaking the law. You were. It's just that when the sign gets stuck up and you see it, you realize, oh, I've been, I've been shown the law. I'm convicted. Uh, I'm, I'm held accountable. And so that's what the law does. And that's what this, this writer was saying um, that, that the, the law shows us our sin. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, God's original design for humanity without sin in the world is that we would love one another. And, of course, sin enters the picture and, and taints that, ruins it, uh, tarnishes it, 
affects everything, but, but God's original desire doesn't change. The desire is still that men and women, uh, everyone, would still love each other. So that in this world, though fallen, we should love even our enemies. Uh, and so what Jesus is doing is he's holding up a spiritual speed limit sign for us in his teaching here. Well, our first point is this. Please won't you be my neighbor. And I know what you're thinking, and I've already printed up the lyrics of that wonderful uh, uh, piece of music by um, uh, Mr. Rogers. I don't mean Adrian. Um, he sings, uh, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, would you be mine? Remember that, right? Um, and then there's another uh, wonderful verse, and then it's really a well-constructed song. He's got a bridge in there, uh, and here's the bridge. He says, um, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. And you know the big finish. But uh, anyway, what I thought was so interesting about that is... Uh, you know, he's pleading, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Won't you please? And, you know, what's unique about that is, you know, a neighbor is desirous. You know, he wants you to move in. Uh, won't you please? I've always wanted to live by somebody just like you. And uh, in our passage, it addresses quite another thing. And it's what makes the saying hard. Uh, in verse 43, look at it. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, there's a repeated refrain in the Sermon on the Mount uh, by Jesus, and we've just seen it here. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you, I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Well, that's a common refrain in the Sermon on the Mount, which the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the most quoted, most written about, most studied three chapters in the Bible. In fact, I've got uh, 16 commentaries on the book of Matthew. Six are just on the Sermon on the Mount. So you can tell just, just by looking at my shelf how much uh, literature is written about these three chapters. And throughout it, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And there are several important implications about that. First of all, Jesus is making a declarative statement. He's basically saying um, he's somehow qualified to interpret the law. And not only that, he's saying that he's more qualified than anybody else to interpret the law. Because when he says, you heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's, he's saying, somebody else told you, somebody else interpreted the law, your rabbi, your teacher, somebody else was schooling you, okay? But I say to you, this is what it really is supposed to mean. So he's not only, he's not only saying he can interpret the law, which only God can do. But he's saying, I'm the, I'm the most qualified. I'm the only one who can ter- interpret the law. Well, you know, the professional clergy of Jesus' day wouldn't like that very much. Uh, first of all, it kind of upsets the rabbi-disciple uh, uh, relationship there and also kind of monkeys with their power base and everything. But also, if uh, Jesus is saying these things and he really believes what he's saying, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what he's really doing is, is uh, if he's not the son of God, it's blasphemy. If he's not who he claims to be, it's blasphemy. He's stepping in the, in the, the place of God and interpreting God's law. And, of course, he is the Son of God, and uh, it's not blasphemous. Uh, no one is better to interpret the law uh, than him. Well, so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, uh, every time you see one of those things, you need to remember he's not augmenting the law. Jesus is not taking the law to a deeper degree, or he's not, he's not kicking it up a notch. That's not what he's doing. I know a lot of people say that, oh, he's, he's, he's augmenting the law. He's, he's taking it up a notch. That's not what he's doing, though. What he's doing is 
He's elucidating what the law meant in the first place. In every one of these situations, he said, you heard it was said, but I say to you, he's not jacking it up a little bit. He's saying, I'm interpreting what it meant in the first place. He, he penetrates uh, to the very heart of the law. So let's start with the problem. The problem is in verse 43, you heard that it was said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, you know, loving your neighbor, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's, it satisfies that whole uh, you know, emo, be nice theology that's floating around out there with your children right now. I don't know if you knew that or not, but be nice. Just be nice. If everybody could just be nice, then the world would be okay if we're all nice. So, you know, people like that. And, of course, you know, the loving your neighbor thing, is, it ain't bad for your property value. You don't want some jerk over there messing up things and everything. So that, that's good to be neighborly. Yes, we should do that. Uh, but um, it's commanded by God. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your own people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. You can already see how forgiveness must play some role in there uh, to some degree. If we're not to bear a grudge, there's got to be some element of forgiveness in there. Uh, But here's the problem. The interpreters of the law in Jesus' day and preceding Jesus' day um, had massaged the idea of loving one's neighbor. Okay, they kind of monkeyed around with it. You know, if you, if you, if you take God's law and, and make laws that surround God's law and make laws that surround those laws, pretty, much, pretty soon you're not worrying about God's law. You're worrying about the layers of laws that surround the real law. And this is what's happening. You've got people interpreting the law, and um, they've massaged the idea of loving one's neighbor, and, they, and they've twisted it with this kind of a logic. Well, if we're supposed to love our neighbor, then it seems kind of logical that we ought to be able to turn around and hate the enemy. You know, you love deeply over here and you hate deeply over here, and that's just good for everything, you know. Uh, but, you know, and they may have even backed it up with the imprecatory psalms. You know what the imprecatory psalms are? They're the, the mean psalms where you read them and you go, break the teeth of your enemy. You're like, wow, break the teeth. Wow, that's wow. But, you know, in those kinds of psalms and in the Bible, when you see those kinds of things, those imprecatory type things, those are not... Um, I don't like this person, Lord, and I just pray that you'll kill him. That's what I'm saying. I pray that you just ruin him. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's, it's saying, the psalmists are saying, Lord, iniquity. Uh, people are against you. Uh, might your holy courts be served? Might justice be served? Might you, might vengeance be yours, not mine? And so when, when you, you write, see psalmists writing so sternly, they're saying, Lord, you take vengeance. Because righteousness is important to you, it's important to me. Justice is important to you, it's important to me, and I want you to take vengeance. All right, so they may have pulled some of that stuff in here for their, their logic, but, but it's, it's a perversion of the law. Because to say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, does two things. Uh, it omits something, and then it adds something. I, I read to you Leviticus 19.18. Look at verse 43, if you would. Just look at it. And let me read Leviticus 19 for you again. Just put your eyes on verse 43. Look at it. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. What do they leave out? The teachers of Jesus' day. That love your neighbor as yourself can have a big deal. Because uh, that's not a theology that says, oh, we should put ourselves in first place and that we should have this anthropocentric uh, attitude about everything. That's not what that's saying. 
It is to say, you know, we kind of care about our own survival, don't we? I mean, when you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you're looking for the next place to pull over to get a bottle of water. I mean, uh, we, we care about our own survival. We care about cleaning our body. We care about it if we stub our toe and we're limping around. That makes a big difference to our existence. That's built into us. So we care about ourselves. And what, what, what it is to love your neighbor as yourself is to say, with the same t- care that you, with which you, you tend to your own self, you're supposed to do that sacrificially to other people. So that... Love your neighbor as yourself with the same intensity uh, with which you take care of your own self. That's the way we're supposed to be treating other people. We're supposed to be putting them in that high place. So as soon as you take that out, you narrow the focus of love. You take it from this high place to this narrow place. Okay, but the other problem is, and and even worse, is that the the addition of hate your enemy. Uh, That's a corrupted file in the the Hebrew uh, computer bank. Um, nowhere in the Old Testament is anything taught like that. Now, keep your finger in Matthew 5, if you would, and uh, flip ahead to Luke. Um, I just want to show you uh, in Luke chapter 10. This will be a familiar story to you, probably. Luke uh, 10, verse 25. Um, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And uh, this, uh, this uh, expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he answered correctly, didn't he? Well, that's what Jesus says. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But now listen. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's a big question. Who's my neighbor? And, of course, Jesus goes on to tell the story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, this hated man, and the three people walk by, or the other guys walk by, and he's the third one that comes by, and he's the one that bandages the wounds and cares for this guy. And at the end of the parable, um, at verse uh, 36, Jesus asks this question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Well, you've got two cultures that hate each other. And Jesus, for his illustration, juxtaposes those two cultures. And mercy crosses the divide. And that's what, says Jesus, is what a neighbor is. Who's my neighbor on the part of this guy was really a, a good question. Uh, whatever his motives. Um, who's my neighbor, Jesus? I want to know who I'm supposed to be good to. Who, who, I mean, where? I mean, I, I can love my Israelite brothers and sisters. I can love my mom and dad. I can love the people who are important to me. But, you know, where do I draw the line? Who is my neighbor? Is it, here's what's a good question, is it uh, every Israelite? You know, the true Israelite, the bloodline, is it every true Israelite? Or... What about those, guys, those people, men and women, who have come into the, the Israelite community and, and uh, have become Jewish, and uh, are, we consider them to be Jewish except for the fact that they're not direct descendants of, of Abraham? What about those people? Should we, are, they, are they my neighbor too? Or what about the difference between good Israelites and bad Israelites? Like, I'm, if I'm an Israelite, I might say, well, what about, you know, I've got the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees, I mean, they're highly regarded and they're all pious and everything. And then you've got these publicans, these tax collectors, you know. 
And, and, and I mean, go worse than that. What about the hookers? You know, I mean, how do I, who's my neighbor now? Do I now have to make a distinction between the good Israelites and the, the not so good Israelites? And who's, who's to say? Not a bad question, who's my neighbor? How do you qualify it and how do you, how do you behave toward them? Well, um, you don't have to turn because uh, I'm already here. Um, but in Romans 12, um, Paul quotes um, a passage in Proverbs 25. And let me just read you uh, kind of what precedes it. He says, do not repay evil for evil. Don't, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And here's where he quotes Proverbs 25. On the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, that doesn't mean, ha, ha, I got you with my good, righteous act. It's, it's uh, let God, vengeance is the Lord's. If, the, if your enemy's in trouble and he needs water and food, then give it to him. Let God sort out the justice department. Um, th- this is also um, another passage from the Old Testament which, with, with which uh, these guys should have made the determination about who the neighbor is. Uh, this is in Exodus 23. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Now, you know, if there's somebody who hates your guts, who's really done you wrong and dirty and out in the business world, or somebody that's just you've had a run-in with and you see him around town at the schnooks and you just go in the other row and it's just a real, it's, it's troublesome. And you see them down at the, you know, they're in the middle of the intersection and their car's stalled and they're trying to push it by themselves. This, this is a mandate for you to get out of your car and help your enemy push it to safety. Well, that's a hard statement, isn't it? Who's my neighbor? Kind of a difficult statement. Well, I can tell you this, and this is I'm straying from my notes for just a second, which is frightening my wife to no end. But um, we may have to edit this out of this CD, but it, since it's on my heart, you know, the ministry life is, uh, is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know God's people and to be with God's people. And as Dr. Young has said, to be brought into deep places in people's lives. I mean, you know, I get to take pictures of babies. And they actually let me hold them, too. They're like, even if I'm sick, they're like, we don't care. Hold our baby, you know. <clears throat> you know, it's just an honor uh, to be involved in deep places in people's lives and to know stuff about them. And it's just, it's, it's a huge, huge blessing. But w- along with that, every once in a while, I know it's hard to believe, but I, I irritate people. Um, and, you know, over a period of years, you can look back and say, gosh, one, two, three, four, okay, I've driven out, you know. I don't know, 18, 20 families, you know, I mean, personally, you know, on the exit interview, we hate Jim Umlauf, you know, and, and uh, that can be a little bit hurtful, you know, uh, but uh, just I, I can think of a few examples um, as I was kind of air preaching this, this afternoon. I just thought of a few examples. Um, the Lord has just been so kind to me because I, I, I'm telling you, there are a few cases that I can think of where, I mean, Specifically, we hate Jim Umla. And uh, I've, the Lord has done something in my heart that's very mysterious. Where I, I mean, I look at those people, and I, I'm not like, oh, I love you, but, you know, there's no but. I mean, I just, 
I, I care about these people and, and I want them to do well. And I, uh, it's just amazing, ladies and gentlemen. It's just amazing how God uh, will, will heal relationships and move you through things. And uh, um, anyway, I just thought you want, a, you want a real example of, of life, I can, I can give you one. Um, loving those who, uh, who uh, may persecute you rightly or wrongly. I mean, the hurt might be still the same, but I'm telling you, if we heed God's command on this, I'm just telling you from personal experience, he honors it. He does. Um, well, let, let me say this, um, switching gears slightly. I've said this to a number of rooms full of people in my lifetime, and uh, I, I, there's always this huge sense of relief that kind of falls over the room. And, and, in fact, there's like this giddiness. Nobody wants to act excited, but they really are when I say this that nowhere in the Bible are you commanded to like everybody. You see what I mean? I mean, it's like, amen, <laughs> praise the Lord, you know. Um, on the contrary, I think that, you know, our personalities are all different, and, you know, I come barreling down here from the north, you know. I mean, it's just, he, God puts different people. I mean, think about your own family. Does anybody have irritating family members? You know, some of you are like, my children, you know. Um, <laughs> But I think God, he uses that. He allows differences of personalities into people's lives, and we don't have to like everybody. Certain people get on everybody. Everybody has people who get on their nerves a little bit. But So we're not commanded to just like everybody and want to go out to dinner every weekend. That's not a command. But we are commanded to love everybody. We are commanded to lay down our lives. We are commanded to, to treat other people with the same kind of intense care with which we give our own selves. And why do we do that? Well, that's our next point, sons of the Father. Now look at verse 45 and following. Um, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Well, what does he do? Well, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, my goodness, if you love those who love you, uh, Saddam does that. What reward are you going to get? Even the tax collectors are doing that. John Wayne Gacy loves his mother, sends her a birthday card when he was alive. Uh, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing? That, uh, even pagans do that. And so the idea here, ladies and gentlemen, is that we resemble the Father. Now, in case your hearts are, are a flutter and you're scared about statements that, like, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, or uh, anytime there's something about a reward and you start thinking, oh no, is my theology you know, blowing to bits? And, and uh, is it, is, is, do I have to work at it too? I mean, is it Christ plus something else? Well, we know that, sorry, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. It could not mean that we earn sonship because that would be antithetical to grace. Uh, it's contrary to what the gospel teaches. It's another gospel which is no gospel at all, and it's anathema. So we know it can't be that. And, and furthermore, to whom is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you know? Chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So Jesus has a Christian believing audience and he's saying these things to them. So it can't mean that you've got to go out and, uh, and earn some salvation. Rather, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, um, which is understanding that those people themselves are sinners, they're miserable in their sin, they're needy, they need help, they need the Lord Jesus. When you, when you see sinners, even your enemies in that way, 
Everything changes. And it also proves that you belong to God. Who does it prove it to? Well, it proves it to others who are looking at you going, man, I can't believe you love that guy. I can't believe you care about this person's life when they did this to you and you don't want to go blow their house up. I just can't believe that. So it proves it to other people, but it also proves it, friends, to your own souls. Kind of like what I was talking about a minute ago in my own experience. I look back on it and, you know, I mean, if you've been Christian long enough, you pick up all the lingo, you know where to go in the Bible real fast, and you've heard all the preachers, and uh, you've been through a zillion sermons. And uh, I think uh, God, God uses things like this to prove to our own souls, yes, I'm still here. Yes, the Holy Ghost is real. Real, real, real. You find yourself loving in a, in, a, in a mysterious way. Why don't I feel animosity toward this person? Why am I extending a hand toward this person? Uh, it's one of the ways that God proves the reality of his uh, presence in your life. I guess we can kill these lights. <laughs> Why don't we just shut them off? Um, you know, folks, uh, I have a friend who, uh, who uh, chewed tobacco. Um, who chews tobacco? No, I'm just kidding you. But... Uh, <laughs> I had a friend who years ago chewed tobacco, and it's just an awful habit, and he's spitting in the cup. And, I mean, it's just so nasty. It's, it's, I, I don't even want to – I'm sure there are a few people in here. I'm not trying to slam you or anything. But, uh, anyway, it's a terribly, terribly difficult habit for people to quit. And uh, finally he, he quit. I mean, yay, daddy quit his spitting, you know, yay. And, uh, well, he quit, and everybody's celebrating it. And, wow, man, Bob, what a great job. Well, about a year later – his children are walking around the apartment, walking up to the house plants. <laughs> and I wonder why they're doing that, you know? Well, obviously, Daddy started spitting, chewing and spitting again, you know, in the house plants of all things. <laughs> well, folks, the children resemble the, the father, don't they? Well, that's the way it is with us, my friends. I mean, we, we show themselves to belong to our Heavenly Father by behaving like our Heavenly Father and uh, giving Him delight in doing so. All right, our last point is this, the perfect summary. Um, in, um, if you look at verse 48, um, th- this is a summary verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It is summarizing what has come before it, not just in our passage, but in really... Um, Verse 21 and following of this, of this passage, maybe 17 and following actually, um, it's summarizing what's, what's being said. All this instruction by Jesus, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Uh, and then it's summarized with verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now could Jesus possibly mean that we could literally uh, live a perfect life on this earth? Who believes that? It's a very cruel theology. In fact, I've known people who have believed that where they just think, we're working toward perfection in this life. They claim Christ as Savior and, and, and they cite that passage and you're like, man, that's a cruel theology. How, could you, how can you even wake up in the morning uh, and, and, and believe that? How could, you, how could you go a half a day and believe that? Jesus uh, would never have taught us to pray just a few verses later, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses. Why would he, why would he tell us to pray that? Uh, and pray like that uh, if, uh, if we could uh, achieve perfection in this life. Jesus never even hinted uh, at such a notion. The idea, rather, of perfection here uh, means um, a completion, a, a, a growing up, a, a, a lacking of nothing. It's kind of like the Phillips uh, uh, screwdriver uh, fitting neatly into the Phillips head uh, screw. 
You know, it's a, it's a fit, there's a perfection, there's a completion there. That's what it means. But I think it even goes deeper than that. I think, men and women, that it's a design issue. Um, that we have a perfect designer. God designed us in his image. And he's a perfect designer. And even though, as I said at the beginning, sin has, has, has marred everything, God's intent, his desire has not changed. He wants human beings to love one another. He wants us to act as image bearers in this world that is, that is so racked with sin. And, and because it's a design issue, we must not be satisfied with a halfway obedience. Why? Uh, because our Heavenly Father is perfect and uh, He wants us, like Jesus here, to penetrate to the very heart of the law. I close with a couple things. Um, you want to know what makes this uh, a staggeringly important uh, thing to your life? You don't want to know why it makes a huge difference in your life right this minute. Jesus' teaching. Well, I, I think it's this. Um, we, we, we care about humanity, don't we? We care about humanity, and, and, uh, but it's, it's humanity with a capital H that we're most interested in. We like humanity with a capital H. You know, we care about starvation, uh, that kind of humanity with a capital H. And even in our evangelism, when we think about evangelism, most of us, in our, just our normal Christian lives, we think, oh, evangelism with a capital H. We need to take money and stick it on, with a guy on a plane and make him go away and uh, go minister to the humanity with a capital H and, and we celebrate that. And I'm not making fun of that at all. It's a good thing. I mean, I've been to the other side of the world uh, and, and have worked hard on the other side of the world. But what I'm saying to you is we like humanity with a capital H. What's hard for us is humanity with a small H. Because humanity with a, a capital H lets us look at, oh, this big, huge problem, and, and it, lets us, it lets us remain distant. Humanity with a small H makes us act sacrificially and lay our lives down and get interested in somebody's life and care about the nitty-gritty and shed tears with somebody in the middle of the night. I mean, that's what humanity with a small H looks like. You know, humanity with a small H... Uh, is, is often the way God loves. I mean, he, he's, he cares with a big age, else he wouldn't have sent his son. That's grace. He cares about the state of the whole man. He cares about the fallen, uh, fallen condition. But his humanity with a small age is his mercy. He cares about the consequence of sin, the pain that it causes each one of us individually. Have you ever confused about the way God loves? All you've got to do is look at the cross. What shall we do with our enemies, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, uh, the longer you live, the more you... I don't know if you're like me, but, you, you know, I've got this little short list uh, where you look back on your life and you're like, hmm, I know like four or maybe five people that might kill me. Anybody, have, any, anybody like that? <laughs> where it wouldn't surprise you if you're in your office one day and it's like, hey, buddy, remember 14 years ago? You know, yes, you know. Uh, you ever, did anybody have a short list? No? Okay, well, blessings to you. But uh, what do we do with our enemies? Here's what we do with them. We get it in the right context. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later. If when we were God's enemies, 
We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You hear those things? We were God's enemies. We were at enmity with him. We were sinners. We were separated from him as far as east is from west. And how did God treat us? Why, he sent his own son to die, a sacrificial death for us. And so as we look at this world around us, we, we need to remember there are only two kinds of people. There are people who have the Savior, and there are people who need the Savior. Go love accordingly. Heavenly Father, we, um, we take you for granted. We live in a free country, and we live in a place where we see Christians all over the place, and we speak freely about your word, and it's almost at times... Uh, strange uh, to run into non-Christians. Um, but we, we want to be reminded, Lord, that uh, we were enemies of yours. We were uh, far away from you. We were in a hostile place, and, and you saw fit to love us anyway and to send your own son uh, in his righteousness to die a, a, a terrible death on a cruel cross that we deserved. And so our prayer is, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives and that you would uh, prove to uh, others who look on that, that you're real and that this gospel is real and vivid and wonderful. And we pray that you prove it to our own souls too, Lord, that you would work mysteriously in each of our lives, that we would look at you and, and say, that, that couldn't have come from my own invention. Uh, it could only have come from God's tender hand. I pray that you'll supply that in each of our lives. And, of course, we pray it for Christ's glory and that the sinners would be scooped up unto our Savior, in whose name we pray.